The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, good. We're here together. Um, my name is Mira Young, and some of you may be familiar with me, and some not. And uh, I've been a longtime community member for many decades, and a practitioner like you, and um, also community Dharma leader. And I also work as a psychotherapist and meditation teacher. I work with um, grief loss, life transitions, and um, in a practice that's blended with uh, Buddhist teachings and practices. And I teach uh, mindfulness in a variety of settings, um, academic and other in the community. So I'm really grateful to be here and to share on this topic um, that's uh, been really um, challenging to our hearts. So today's talk is on moral suffering, moral suffering and the Dharma. So I'd like to start with a couple of quotes, and one is from um, the Buddha that you may well be familiar with. Hatred does not cease by hatred, but but, but only by love. This is the eternal rule. Hatred does does not cease by hatred, but only by love. This is the eternal rule rule. And uh, Padma Sambhava, also known as Guru Rinpoche, a 16th century Tibetan um, master, says that though, though the view should be vast as sky, keep your conduct as fine as barley flour. Your conduct as fine as barley flour. So in the aftermath of these shootings and ice raids in Mississippi and all the ongoing violence and rhetoric as we in this country and in the world, um, Tuesday night I and a couple of Dharma friends went to the Capitol to the rally of moms and others, um, you know, about wanting to, uh, um, you know, support gun gun laws and, you know, decrease the violence. And while we were there, um, it was announced at the beginning that there was a shooting in progress in uh, one of our suburbs, and someone had been rushed to Regent's Hospital. So there was a deep sadness. Um, Often when I participate in a rally or a march, I also feel a sense of community and solidarity, and I just feel like I need to put my body there to respond in some way. Um, But Tuesday night, I just felt like we were just a small, vulnerable, shaky crowd, you know. So it's a very um, shaky time, and... uh, I hadn't heard this myself, but um, my husband said that um, there's actually travel warnings of some countries to come to our country. It is so violent. Um, I uh, 
you know, work at a center, the Center for Grief and Loss in St. Paul, and one of the people I was working with. Um, some of the people I work with there come from other countries, and some countries that have very violent histories of dictatorships. And um, some of them feel more safe there than here. It's really humbling. And our fear bodies and our, our vulnerability is just so up. And, uh, and uh, just how, um, yeah, just how tender we are and vulnerable and how much hatred is in the world. So how to be with that. So I'd like to share with you and see how we can use, as Cornfield says, the lamp of the Dharma to be a support, to be a vision, to help us in our, um, these times. And also to give you a context of these times um, that's bigger than our current view. So before I launch into some of these teachings, and um, I'd like to share a poem by Joy Harjo, who's uh, uh, from the... Um, American Indian, Native American tradition, and she's our poet laureate for our country. And she says, This morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. I got to ring a bell. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my whole talk. (laughs) Thank you, Joy. Um, So... When I was uh, first starting my spiritual path back in the day, um, mid to late 70s, it actually brought me to Minneapolis. And I started in the yoga tradition initially. And although these teachings now are they're also part of our Buddhist tradition as well. And they talk about um, the Kali Yuga. Have you heard of the term the Kali Yuga? Yugas are like these ages or eons of human existence from the Hindu and Tibetan, the different cosmologies. So having this huge view, probably like um, you know, an astrologer, astronomer, where worlds come and go and there's evolution and dissolution, creativity and change. And so there's these huge cycles in our existence. And... Um, they're, they're beyond anything our, our rational minds can fathom because they're so vast. And uh, they're called cycles. Uh, the world it, uh, goes through these cycles or yugas. And I remember years ago 
They said that this was the Kali Yuga, and I'm not going to um, take too much time to read all the descriptions, but it's exactly what we're going through now. <laughs> and it says, Hindus believe that human civilization degenerates spiritually during the Kali Yuga. The people are as far away as possible from God or the divine, and that Hinduism often symbolically represents morality, the Dharma, as an Indian bull. The common attributes and consequences are spiritual bankruptcy, mindless hedonism, breakdown of all social structure, greed and materialism, unrestricted egotism, afflictions and maladies of mind and body. And that at this stage, they say that the bull of the Dharma has only one leg. (laughs) So it says, so meditation is a great tool to use to combat all of this heat and fire that's happening. And uh, one uh, yogi says that, um, that even though it may be harder to practice right now, that when you can connect with the authentic teachings and you can use your devotion and your compassion and really apply your practice, that that can be uh, a way to stay healthy and to nourish your own spirituality and to be a force of goodness in our world. So it's really, really, really important to practice and also appreciate how difficult it is in times of so much chaos and dissolution. But something, the fact that it sort of helps me to hold a bigger view because it feels so intense and overwhelming. I also reflected, and this is kind of one of those duh, aha moments, is like I thought, I, always feel, I often feel very overwhelmed. I come from a background of grief and loss and trauma, coming from a, a, a Jewish family of survivors. And uh, I often can feel really activated by, by um, the trauma and pain. And it's hard to use my practice at those times. And so um, it suddenly occurred to me as I was looking over one of the texts I brought, there's a book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But there's some wonderful practices in there that actually I use a lot in working with um, clients with all kinds of issues and my own heart. And, and I'm going to share some of those. And uh, it's like, it's like um, grief work. I mean, what we're doing is like how do we stay present with deep grief and sorrow and, and things you know, being out of control and being powerless and getting overwhelmed every time we hear about one of these um, violent events and people dying and children being harmed. You know, it's like this, these huge waves of sorrow washing over us. So one metaphor, one practice is to kind of be like sea kelp, right, in the ocean that's anchored deep in the rock with these knots and to sway, to sway with it, you know. And that our practice is how we can stay anchored. Our practice, the Dhamma, can be our, our rock in that way. I listened to a, a really powerful talk by Joan Halifax, who's one of the elder Dharma uh, 
mothers that's on the planet right now. And she had a wonderful talk on moral suffering and a, from a Dharma perspective. And uh, she mentioned some different ways that we can um, look at moral suffering that I'm going to go through a little laundry list with you here. Um, also, Jack Cornfield uh, talks about our response, our moral response. So let's see if this resonates for you. But when I listened to her talk, and she gave this talk after being at a conference with uh, 800 Buddhist women practitioners, an international conference, and she said there was no whining or complaining. She said that people were really there and present with each other as they listened to their stories of various kinds of suffering from the various Buddhist traditions, and there was no sectarianism, no no um, fighting over whose, whose view of the Dharma was right or wrong, that they actually got along. And she, she talked about um, these different aspects. I'm going to go through four of them, but I'd like to start with first a little definition. This is the landscape of moral suffering, that our values are reflected in our behavior And without integrity, our freedom is compromised. And there is a very fragile edge. And that we can go into what what she calls moral anguish, which is a slip into the chasm of suffering. So when we feel that our values, our integrity, is being um, violated. So the first, first aspect of moral suffering is moral injury or moral distress, and that we need to allow ourselves to feel this moral distress. You know, like like it's okay to open to it. You know, first noble truth, that the grip of moral suffering, a trespass and harm is being caused, but we cannot, um, you know, that we can't just allow, that we can't have that natural flow of our integrity, of our values, is not being valued, is not being honored. It's out of our hands. You know, we, we can't stop it. And we need to see the injustice clearly and that this moral injury is happening and uh, that, that we need to acknowledge it, that we see that people are being treated worse than animals. We can see this type of inhumanity. So, you know, right now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I just want to watch Netflix. You know, I don't want to keep opening. It's overwhelming, yeah? And it's so, it just, it, it just keeps coming every day. I mean, to have the shootings one day and the raids the next, it's just like, so, um, and then the re- reactions to it. So, um, and, and so there's this moral injury and moral distress, there, there can often be a sense of shame that comes with that. And also when we experience it, you know, rates of um, shame and suicide and self-harm can go up. The second aspect of moral outrage, and there's two types with this. And when Joan talked about this, I was like, yeah, this is hitting that spot right in my heart. So... Um, She says that the right dose of moral outrage calls others to account, and it can fire the engines of our commitment to engage with the ones who cause harm. 
The low level of moral outrage is moral apathy, that admitting that we love being self-righteous <laughs> and um, that, that we have this, our anger and our disgust and we can go into chronic patterns of shaming and blaming and what one term is used is called recreational bitterness. It's like, boom, caught, (laughs) call it out. You know, how many times do I sit around the table and unfortunately, every night at the 10 o'clock news, um, there's a ranting and raving going on in my living room. (laughs) It's like, enough, it's 10 o'clock at night. It's like, yeah, but did you hear today on NPR? (laughs) You know, so, so it's just like, you know, on one hand, we need to acknowledge it and allow for some, some of that venting. But on the other hand, it can just get to be a habit. It can just start to get into a real spin, and all it does is like escalate our whole um, nervous system and stress level and sense of powerlessness. So um, I'm really trying to watch how much um, self-righteous anger I'm getting lost and caught in. I don't know about you, but that's a real place of losing awareness. So um, maybe you can, with your Dharma friends, say, um, I think we got some RB going on, (laughs) recreational bitterness. How can we hold this and be present with this kind of suffering? And maybe we'll take some time for you to explore that yourselves here and discuss it. And then the third aspect, so we've got moral injury and moral distress, moral outrage. And, you know, some of that can be useful to use that um, for response and action. Um, The shadow side being what I just talked about. And then the third aspect is moral apathy, and that's the bypassing. That's me wanting to watch the Netflix. It turns us away from the first noble truth. We want to flee it, or we want to deny it. And some of us can even be on the dark other side of um, compassion, which is a little hard-hearted. Well, it doesn't affect me. I can go about my day, you know, And I don't think that happens for most of us here, but sometimes we just shut down, right? Our systems, it's too much. And so we can get numb, we can shut down. And some people have talked about, well, it's quite a bit in the conversation, that, you know, there's so much violence and very terrible things going on that, um, you know, we get a little bit immune to it, right? We kind of like, oh, okay, so... It's just too much, and so our system just shuts down. And partly our animal bodies do that to survive. So we have to be aware of that kind of apathy and that not let, as she says, our bubble of privilege, our practices that can be used to um, bypass this truth of suffering or turn it into the moral outrage of constant complaining. So we could use our practice like you know, concentration, and we can get quiet, and we can actually use our practice as an escape, or we can use our practice to support and and help us stay grounded so we can respond and we can also have a place of refuge. 
So again, it's how, how are we using and being with our practice because we do need to take time to center, to ground, to, to um, quiet, to unplug so that we can be present and open to the suffering and to choose skillful ways to respond and be in the world. And then this is the fourth aspect, which is moral nerve or resilience. Uh, Joan, how do you say, Didon? She says, non-negotiable virtue, that moral nerve is non-negotiable virtue on the abyss of harm, to stand by our principles even more strongly. So um, I came up with my own little framework called the three R's, responsiveness, resilience, and release. So Cornfield talks about the need for moral action and that the foundation of the Dharma is relational. It's based on virtue and loving kindness. So again, not using the Dharma as a way to just say, well, you know, I've got this big view, right? And there's these cycles where everything is in dissolution and chaos and then a birth and death and, you know, and just so much equanimity to the point where you're disconnected. But to really say, okay, this, this is, Gandhi himself said that, that you cannot say that spiritual practice is not political, you know, we are in relationship with one another on this earth, on this realm. And, and we are human beings with hearts and minds. And the foundation of the Dharma is the Eightfold Path, that we practice wise or right intention, intentions that are free from greed, hatred, and ignorance, right? And wise action, actions that are free from harm, killing, stealing, and sexual exploitation. In his own life, the Buddha tried to stop wars. He counseled and had relationships with kings and ministers and others in power. And there's many examples in modern times from Mahagosananda in Cambodia at the killing fields to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said that even in those refugee boats, if one person had a calmer mind, people would survive. So that across the world in storms of uncertainty and fear, it's time to collectively stand up calm and clear and that our Buddhist communities can become centers for protection and vision. And protection can take many forms. There's an example of the Buddha who went to see a monk who was quite ill, who had open sores. And the other monks were tending to him, but what they were doing was mainly just praying or chanting. They were sitting with him. But the Buddha himself actually tended the wounds, these open sores, you know, really hard to clean and clear. And he was the one that actually tended the wounds. So just meditating, and, um, it, but how, it's not enough. We have to practice and actually tend 
the wounds in the ways that make sense for us. That um, going back to Halifax, he said, the point to experience moral distress is not to get overwhelmed. We need a pinch of helplessness and then take a step forward in the world without attachment to outcome. So we don't want to attach to the outcome of what we do. So I want you to have time to talk with each other too. So um, I'll just share a little more here. So the, the carrying the lamp of the Dharma means standing for truth no matter what. That hate and ignorance create suffering, that generosity, love, and wisdom bring happiness, and that mind is a forerunner, as the Buddha said, to speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow. Plant seeds of goodness and well-being will grow. We must listen deeply, bear witness, honor everyone, and choose our actions wisely and courageously. And Jack Cornfield says, do not worry if wise action is not always clear to you. Wait in the unknowing with mindfulness. Trust your heart, and soon you will know where you must stand up, and I will meet you there. So sometimes we don't always know how best to respond Sometimes when I'm working or I'm out in the world, um, you know, sometimes it's just taking that moment to just be and then see what arises. The other day in my office, there was a lot of suffering and there were no words. And so I just, you know, lit a candle, um, offered some lavender or sage, and just. Um, we took some moments to just be and then see how to go from there. So um, just invite you to find your ways. Cornell West gave a graduation speech at Harvard to the Black and Latinx graduate group. And he talked about how um, uh, that the concept of pedia, which is a member of society, an education that's forced, that's focused on producing a whole enlightened member of society. And he called on students to distinguish between market-based success and freedom. He said, don't confuse your vocation with your profession. Put at the center of your calling and vocation integrity. Integrity. He said, truth means the condition of suffering we must speak. And he advised his listeners to keep track of of any form of harm and unwarranted hurt. It is important to remember we've been shaped deeply by these things that we are critical of, and the focus should be on critical compassion, delicate, difficult conversations, rather than responding to terror or injustice or difficulty by imposing terror or injustice on others. So I'd like to close with... um, a poem by, um, this is a call, actually, by Joan Harjo. I'm going to read excerpts of it because it's rather long. So I want you to have some time to talk together. And uh, this may give you some ideas of how to respond. For the calling the spirit back from wandering the earth in its human feet, 
by Joe, Joy Harjo. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote. Open the door, then close it behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing it, it will lift your spirit to the stars, ears, and back. Don't worry, the heart knows the way, though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and all those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire, keep burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. Let go the pain you're holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. May take the forms of animal, element, bird, angel, stone, ancestor. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and human abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would a beloved child. Make a giveaway and remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way through the dark. Let's sit. So please forgive me if anything I said, if I'll take responsibility if they have caused harm, forgive me. And uh, please take time to turn towards the neighbor or two and explore how are you being with this um, moral suffering and what are the ways that you may be responding and, and if you're feeling the overwhelm and try not to fall into too much recreational bitterness. <laughs> and then we'll close with our, um, our, our um, sharing the merit and loving kindness, maybe a little question at Q&A. We end at uh, 1140, is that right? Do kiddos come in today? Okay, all right. All right, take five and we'll ha- leave time for a few comments and closing. So I hope you'll keep the conversations going. Um, I'm sorry I didn't leave more time. I want to honor your time. We have like two minutes. 
But um, if there's a burning or, or a cooling comment that wants to come, we'll take one or two and then we'll finish today. Yes, you want to share? <laughs> I just want to ask that we do a prayer together for the 22 lives. Yes. And then, and is it eight or nine in yeah. Ohio? So the yeah. 31 people. That's it. And then we'll, um, we'll offer uh, the benefits of our practice to um, those who have um, lost their lives violently. May they have safe journey. And to their families and, all, and friends and all of us, all the communities. It just always is so um, powerful how you know, one little life has so many ripples out into our, our uh, human body, our human heart condition. You know, so many beings touched by even one life. So let's sit silently and trust the prayer in your own heart. And we should share the merit of our practice, especially with those who have lost their lives in this way and their their communities, families, dear ones. And then let it radiate out to our hearts, to one another, and to all of us everywhere in all directions. So just take your time. We'll sit. May all sentient beings be free from inner and outer harm and danger, safe and protected in all ways. No true peace, true happiness and liberation. This is from the loving-kindness metta by Bhante Gunaratana. May we be well, happy, and peaceful. May no harm come to us. May we always meet with spiritual success. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May we always rise above them with morality, integrity, forgiveness, compassion, mindfulness, and wisdom. Thank you, everyone. Take care. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.